0: Welcome and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at nine and ten forty-five AM. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now here's the sermon from Sunday. One year for my birthday when I was probably eight or nine years old, um, and despite the warnings of movies like A Christmas Story that I would shoot my eye out, uh, my parents decided to buy me a BB gun. And uh, for a couple weeks I had fun uh, trying it out on my, my my bullseye that I had printed and hung up on trees in the backyard um, shooting uh, tin cans off the back fence before I decided I would move on to more interesting targets. And so uh, I'll never forget the unusually warm winter day when I invited my sister to join me in the woods behind our house for a hunting trip. And uh, the first living creature that we stumbled upon was this beautiful songbird that was perched on one of the low-hanging limbs of a tree. And I'll never forget my sister pleading with me as I raised the barrel of the gun and I'll never forget her scream of horror as we both watched the bird fall to the ground because that was a pretty good shot but most of all I'll never forget that sickening feeling in my gut as I knelt alone over the lifeless body of this beautiful bird and two cold hard truths began to sink into my young heart for the first time in my life. That death is real and death is appalling. Death is real and it is appalling. It's supposed to elicit that kind of response from us. Once we are confronted with these two realities, most People will spend the rest of their lives desperately trying to avoid both those truths at all costs. We spend billions of dollars a year on anti aging products, billions more on uh, exercise equipment and gym memberships, and even billions more than that on healthcare costs, attempting to mask, slow, and counter the process of dying. But really, we are just delaying the inevitable. Because every moment, since the very moment you were conceived in your mother's womb, at a cellular level, you have literally been dying. Every single one of us here this morning is dying. Some of us are just closer to the cliff than others. And so what do we do when we can no longer keep the reality of death at bay? Well, when we're forced to attend a funeral or to visit the nursing home or to... Drive over that raccoon carcass in the middle of the highway that you couldn't swerve safely and avoid. What do we do? Well, we try and convince ourselves that maybe death just isn't as horrifying as we think it is. We refer to it in softer euphemisms like she left us or he passed on. We comfort ourselves with the notion that the raccoon is now in a better place. Or we tell ourselves that death is just a natural part of, you know, the circle of life. But no matter what you call it, and no matter how strong your hope in the afterlife may be, the fact remains that death is not natural. That there is something deep within each one of us that while we are standing over that bird while we are standing over that open casket, while we're standing over that hospice bed that cries out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is not natural. It is not something we take lightly, and it's not something we celebrate as Christians. And so you can go home and throw out your cute skeletons Halloween. The Bible calls death our enemy is the last enemy awaiting us all at the end of a life filled with lesser enemies. King Solomon has explored and lamented many of these troubles that plague our vain lives here under the sun for eight chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes thus far, adversaries like oppression Folly, poverty, loneliness, suffering, but none of them compares to our last enemy. Life is kind of like a video game, you know, where every level gets progressively harder and all the while, you're just anticipating, you're dreading that last level, that final enemy you know you're going to have to face, so you know it's going to be the toughest one of all. I must have tried a hundred times when I was in middle school to beat the last level of GoldenEye 007 where you face off against Trevlin face-to-face on the cradle. Never did beat it. But it turns out, in the game of life, not the terrible board game where you try and die with the most money. Solomon already told us that's a stupid way to live, back in chapters 5 and 6. No, I'm talking about the r- real game of real life. In life, our last enemies, is far tougher than trevelin or some pretend estate tax you pay. In fact, death isn't just tough to beat, it's impossible. Scientists estimate that 117 billion people have walked our planet, and aside from the 7.8 billion of us still alive today, death has killed every single one of them. Now, one of my elders handed me a little card after the first service that said, what about Elijah? What about Enoch? Okay, there's a couple exceptions in the Old Testament. But for the most part, death is undefeated. The scoreboard reads death, 109.2 billion, humanity, zero. Death is undefeated. At least death was undefeated. I can get ahead of myself. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? From Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices, him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and as he who swears is, just as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil. And all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all also. The, children of, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy, have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you here under the sun, because that is your portion in life and then your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, teach us to number our days this morning that we may get a heart of wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Solomon has been tracing this theme of death in every single chapter of Ecclesiastes thus far. There's a reference to death every chapter, but this morning he finally confronts death, this greatest of all evils under the sun head on. And in Solomon's view, death is the greatest of evils because it has the power to nullify everything else in life because none of it can survive our inevitable, and relatively speaking, our imminent death. We all come into this life with an expiration date. And hence, this morning's culminating sermon title, Life is Hevel. Remember, Hevel is the Hebrew word repeated 38 times in these 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes that literally translate Translates as smoke, breath, vapor, mist. And if you're new this morning, so far, Solomon has been unpacking and telling us all the things under the sun that are hevel. Work is hevel, nature is hevel, knowledge is hevel, progress is hevel, legacy is hevel, pleasure is hevel, time is heaven, money is hevel, folly is hevel, even wisdom is hevel. But this morning, Solomon is going to sum all of it up with his conclusion that all of life is hevel. Because from an eternal perspective, from a biblical perspective, that is what our lives here under the sun really are. They're but a shadow, a mist, a vapor, a breath. Psalm 144.4, man is like a breath, a hevel, his days are like a passing shadow. Psalm 102, three and 11, for my days pass away like smoke, hevel, like an evening shadow, I wither away like grass. James 4, 14, ask, what is your life? For you are a mist, a hevel, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And this morning, Solomon is going to give us three reasons why life is hevel before he offers us three suggestions for how we ought to live our vain days under the sun in light of that reality. But here's my promise to you. Then we're going to end Just for a moment, by zooming out and reminding ourselves that Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is just one chapter in the middle of just one book, in the middle of the good book, the overarching redemptive story, and that for all of his earthly wisdom, Solomon did not know, he could not know the most crucial, urgent, life-changing truth that you and I now can know need to know simply by virtue of his time and location on history's timeline, the redemptive story. And so my promise is to end with that. If you don't leave early, don't leave early this morning. It's going to get good. I promise it's going to be hard for like 40 minutes and then it's going to get really good. So let's dive in. First of all, life is heavy because number one, we are all sinners we're all sinners. The opening of chapter 9 here reads almost like a conclusion, like Solomon's reasoned deduction based on all that he has observed thus far leading up to this point in chapters 1 through 8. He opens verse 1 with this, but all this that I've written before, all of it I laid to heart examining it all, and here's his conclusion, the righteous And the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. And for the 1.5 seconds that it takes us to pause after that period, before we read on to Solomon's next thought, next sentence, that sounds like a really comforting truth, doesn't it? I mean, it certainly was when we grew up singing about it in Sunday school. He's got the whole world... Right? And you, you don't, we don't sing it in a minor key. It's not dismal, you know. It's a happy thing. He's got you and me, brother. He's got you and me, sister, in his hand. It's a good thing. Solomon's not so sure. He says, "...whether it God's reaction to our being in his hand, whether that is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him." Both are real possibilities for God. Love and hate. Sure, God may react to you being in his hand with love. But you may get hate. God declares in Malachi 1, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Sure, Psalm 139 verse 10 comforts us that the Lord's right hand shall hold me. If, like Jacob, we are among those who he loves. But Hebrews 10.31 warns us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God if, like Esau, we are among those hated. Psalm 11, verse 5, the Lord hates the wicked. Psalm 5, verse 5, you hate all evildoers. So, as commentator Philip Ryken points out, it is not enough to know that we are in God's hands. Everyone is in God's hands. The question is whether God's hand is for us or against us. That's why the great revivalist, John Edwards, warned his congregation, and he would warn us still today if we would hear him, not to wait until it's too late. Don't wait until your own judgment day to realize that you are a sinner in the hands of an angry God an angry God that a perfectly holy totally pure utterly righteous God will rightly justly be angered by our sin by all sin your sin Not just the big ones. God doesn't just like wake up whenever there's a murder or a rape or adultery. No. That white lie you told your wife to avoid an argument on the way to church this morning. Wife, your vanity, spending more time this morning in front of the mirror, concerned with your physical appearance before others in the church than you did in God's word, concerned with your spiritual appearance before the Lord. Kids, your sinful defiance of your parents. Their authority, that eye roll you gave mom when she told you to tuck in your shirt because she's vain. That's her sin. She will answer for that. Your sin is your rebellion against it. You're called to respect her anyway, to submit and tuck it in. You could have been killed in the Old Testament for that eye roll. Deuteronomy 21, look it up. That is how serious our God takes sin. How much he hates it all sin he hates it and that is Solomon's point here that we are all sinners even the allegedly righteous and wise please don't miss this crucial truth right out of the gate in verse 1 because otherwise friends you you may hear this warning about sin this morning and be tempted to just go out and try a little harder to be a good person whatever that means that Solomon is only considering good people in verse one. I mean, reread it for yourself the righteous and the wise. That's all he's talked about so far in verse one. He says, We can't know conclusively whether God's response to our life is going to be love or hate, and he's only got good people in view. In other words, for those of you who are here this morning who are counting on your goodness, your righteousness to save you from God's just, understandable wrath against sin. When you stand before his judgment throne one day, Solomon would ask you this morning, how good do you imagine is going to be good enough for a truly holy God, a truly perfect God? Because that's how most people envision their day of reckoning going, isn't it? I mean, if they believe in God at all, they imagine that at heaven's gate, there's some sort of you know, cosmic moral scale that they will step on that will weigh all of their good deeds against all of their bad deeds. And so long as the good barely outweighs the bad, the scales tip in the right direction, the gates will swing open for them. But Solomon asks, are you so sure that you know the relative weight that God is gonna place on one deed versus another? How sure are you? I mean, of course we all want to envision God is like the PE teacher whose job it is to give everyone an A to raise the school's average. But are you so sure that God isn't like the AP calculus teacher who didn't grade on a curve? Who, Who didn't give extra credit for showing your work? Whatever they do in the new math these days, right? You either got it right or you got it wrong. Are you so sure that what it takes to get into heaven is just a passing grade? All you need is a 70 or a 51, a little better than, than 50-50. Because just got to barely outweigh the bad. What makes you think that God, God's going to let you in on a passing grade on a 70? What makes you think that God's going to let you in on a, an A+, plus, a 99? What if Jesus really meant it when he said in Matthew five forty-eight that heaven is the perfect home of a perfect God. Therefore, it's for perfect people. And Jesus meant it when he said, therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What if the Bible really means it in James 2.10 when it says whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become guilty of all of it. That just one sin can really actually keep you out of heaven, disqualify you from a perfect place with a perfect God. Anyone here sinless? Zero sins. No? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's careful. Okay. Now that we've got it clarified. Sinless. Okay. Seeing no hands anymore. You need help. You need help getting into heaven. Because you can't get in on your own merit. No, Solomon reminds us of the truth in verse 3, that the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. Your heart is wicked and desperately sick, Jeremiah 17.9. Who can understand it? Your heart is more wicked and evil than you even know it is. At Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. First John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, if you had raised your hand a moment ago, We deceive ourselves. If you think you are good enough to make heaven's cut on your own merit, you are kidding yourself. As Solomon put it two weeks ago in chapter 7, surely there is not a righteous man in all the earth who does good and never sins. Not a single one. We are all sinners. And because we're all sinners... Observation number two, we will all die. We will all die. See, the Bible explains in Romans 5 that death came into the world through sin, and death spread to all because all have sinned. It explains in Romans 6 that the wages of sin, the payment, what is owed the sinner by virtue of his working all the time, sinning, is death. Similarly, Solomon here observes in verse 3 that our hearts are full of evil, sin. And after that, we go to the dead. Every single one of us. Verse 2 says it's the same for all. Since the same event, death, happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, the clean, the unclean, the sacrificer and the one who doesn't sacrifice, the good one, the sinner... The one who swears and the one who shuns an oath to the church attender and the one who skips. The one who prays religiously every day and the one who thinks that's a joke. The one who studies their Bible diligently and the one who never picks it up off the shelf who doesn't even own a Bible makes absolutely no difference. Death is indiscriminate. It comes for us all. And this painful reality is grieves Solomon to his core in verse 2 he says this is an evil an evil in all that is done under the sun the greatest evil he's observed of all is, is that the same event death happens to all and friends it ought to grieve us as well and god himself tells us in the book of Ezekiel, i take no pleasure in the death even of the wicked ought to grieve us death will there be tears of joy at the funeral for a believer a follower of jesus who we know is now in heaven with her savior absolutely tears of joy but will they also be mixed with tears of sorrow tears of loss Tears that testify to this truth that it's really not supposed to be this way. That we're not supposed to have to say goodbye. That God really has put eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3.11, because he made us for eternity with him. That if we hadn't screwed up and sinned in the garden all the way back in Genesis 3, that death wouldn't have ever even entered the equation. It's not part of God's original, very good, holy good Perfect design, plan for creation. Death is unnatural, it is appalling, and it ought not to be this way. You better believe there will be those tears, tears of sorrow, shed at the believer's funeral as well. And yet those tears are nothing compared to the tears that will be shed at the funeral for the unbeliever person who died without knowing Jesus personally as their Lord and Savior which leads us to Solomon's third observation here that without Jesus because remember all of it Solomon's writing a thousand years before Jesus all of it at this point is without Jesus so for every single person who lived in Solomon's day and still today for those who don't know Jesus personally number three We have no hope, no hope in death. Solomon appraises the situation and he concludes that without a Savior, someone to save you from that sin, that the void of the Messiah coming, we know he's going to come one day, set us free from the curse of sin and its consequence, death, but until that day comes, Solomon says in verse 4, he who is joined with all the living has at least some hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Lion is the king of the jungle, the most regal, powerful of animals. Dogs were not cute, cuddly little pets in Solomon's day. They were mangy, vulturous, despised pests. But according to Solomon, better to be a living dog than a dead lion. Death is that bad. It's that hopeless. He goes on, verse 5, For the living at least know that they will die. Sure, we got to live with this, this constant threat of death hanging over our heads like an ominous dark cloud, but that's at least still better than the dead who know nothing. Is they have no more reward. The memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their envy, they've already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Translation Death means game over. And you don't get extra lives, you don't get to reset and try the level a hundred more times. You get one shot, and it's done. And guess what? You are guaranteed defeat. We are all born into this life knowing full well that death is that last enemy we must face. And eventually, one way or another, eventually, it will beat all of us. You might win a couple rounds. We've got some folks here at West Hills that have gone toe-to-toe with death a couple times now, a couple rounds. They have lived to fight another day. Brian West, given a year to live 10 years ago. Brian Gaither, given a month to live 10 months ago. Praise God, keep fighting, brothers, but don't forget, you will lose in the last round. I mean, you can kick death's butt for nine rounds, but he always wins, delivers the knockout punch in the 10th round. Sooner or later, you will end up like all those other 109.2 billion dead. And what is true for Brian and Brian is true for you and me as well. When we step in the ring against death, we have absolutely no hope eventually of walking out alive. Death will come for us all and finish us. So, what can we do about it? Solomon is going to commend three things here, three responses in light of death's inevitability. And let me just say this. Solomon's advice is still good advice for us today. It's not the best advice. I told you, we'll get to the best advice. But he didn't have the best advice available to him. He lived 1,000 years too early. But his advice was still good advice, even for us still today. And so, we still need to listen Heed his words this morning. They are words to live by. Wisdom. There's wisdom here. That in light of life's heaviness, life's futility and temporariness, because we all sin, and therefore we all die, and without Jesus in death, we have no hope beyond the grave. In light of all that now, how should we live? Number one, we should live it up. Party. You heard that right. The Bible is giving you permission, not just the permission, the command this morning to grab life by the horns and milk it for all it's worth. I might be mixing metaphors, but you get the point. When we realize that we have but this one life to live and we recognize how brief it really is, you're a blip on the radar That ought to inspire us to make the most of it, to carpe our diem, yolo, yeet. As I'm told, that's the Gen Z slang for just go for it. Very hip. Or in Solomon's words, go eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow, we die. And also, for this reason, he says, because God has already approved of what you do. So get this. I mean, many of us may have grown up in legalistic churches, First Baptist Footloose, Where they replace God's commandment with their own, thou shalt not have any fun, no drinking, no dancing, no gambling, which meant no cards or dice or really any fun games of any kind. No sex, unless it's between a husband and a wife, once a year to make a baby, lights off, missionary position, you can't enjoy it, you feel guilty about it afterward. But if they had just thumped their Bibles a little harder, it might have fallen open to the book of Ecclesiastes, and they would have had to deal with chapter 9 here. God's commendation of our fun, eat, drink, and be merry, for God approves. They didn't preach that when at first Baptist Footloose. They definitely didn't get the Song of Solomon. They didn't preach 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So Philip Ryken suggests if it's not explicitly unholy according to the word of God, if it's something that you can with a clean conscience be thankful for when you pray, God, thank you for this thoroughly secular TV show that is nevertheless entertaining and even maybe a little edifying God thank you for this secular band who don't seem to know you at all by their lyrics but through whom I experience your beauty in music God thank you for the chiefs for overpaid overgrown men who smash into each other every Sunday for my viewing pleasure Solomon says, go home this afternoon, crack open a beer, and enjoy the game with a merry heart, for God approves. And wives, while they do, you go out and get that manny petty you've been wanting. You don't, you've been convincing yourself, but I don't need it. It's expensive. Of course you don't need it. We don't need wine either in verse 7. We don't need oil for our heads. That's perfume, verse 8. You don't need perfume, but Solomon says, treat yourself Let your garments be always white. Verse 8, Reichen explains, White garments were like the dress-up clothes of the ancient Near East for festive occasions. They were worn by war heroes in a victory parade, by slaves on the day they gained their freedom, by priests on the high holy days of Israel. In other words, put on your party clothes and live it up while you still can. Because it's going to be gone before you realize. Verse 9, enjoy life. With the wife whom you love, enjoy your spouse. Don't just tolerate him. Don't just put up with her. Husbands, do you make it easy for your wife to enjoy you? Do you love her like Christ loves the church? Ephesians 5.25. Are you gentle with her? Colossians 3.19. Do you treat her with respect? 1 Peter 3.7. Wives, do you make it easy for your husband to enjoy you? Do you respect him? 1 Peter 3, one. do you do good to him and not harm? Proverbs 31.12, are you a Proverbs 31 woman or a Proverbs 19 woman? A wife's nagging is like a continual dripping of rain. Do you use sex as a weapon? 1 Corinthians 7.4, if you don't enjoy one another as a couple, then you need to get yourselves into marriage counseling and fix some stuff because you are breaking God's law. Marriage is a good gift given by a good God for your enjoyment because he loves you. And so too is work. Number two, we should work hard. Party hard and work hard. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Don't just tolerate your nine to five so that you can go live it up after work. Solomon says, no, grab your career by the horns as well. Find something worth doing in life and do it well. Put your whole heart and soul into it. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord and not for men. Do your job like you would if Jesus was your boss. Party on and work diligently as well. As philosopher David Guetta Puts it, work hard, play hard. But thirdly and finally, no 2000s pop music fans in here. Nobody got that reference. Thirdly and finally, Solomon advises, number three, we should not get too attached. Don't get too attached to life here under the sun because it's nothing but a breath. You're going to blink and it will all be over. Verse 11, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Life is unpredictable. You would think that the fastest runner would run the race, wouldn't you? You would think that the stronger warrior wins the battle, that health and wealth and happiness would go to the wise and the righteous. But what about the tortoise and the hare? What about David and Goliath? What about all those wise righteous folks that Solomon observed and lamented last week in chapter 8, who instead suffer the fate of evil fools and vice versa, the wicked to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Life is unfair and it's unpredictable. And the most unfair, unpredictable thing of all is death. He says, time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken up in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. One second... You're swimming along, you're flying along, free as can be. The next second, wham, your name gets called. You're gone like that. Like my grandmother, who died of Rocky Mountain spotted fever from a tick bite when she was in her 60s. One day, she's strolling through the woods, enjoying her new retirement. A few weeks later, she's gone. One Day you're enjoying a Halloween party in Seoul, Korea. The next minute you are trampled to death along with 150 people killed. Like Sarah Beth Whitehead. I was in youth group with Sarah Beth growing up. She was in middle school when I was in high school. I was friends with her older brother, John. She was A fun, sweet girl. She was one of those rare middle schoolers who everyone just seemed to like. When she was a freshman in high school, she wrote this in her diary. She said, I want to set a record in track and field for shot put before I graduate and hopefully go to state. I would also like to focus on my schoolwork and get into a college that can educate me in physical therapy or sports medicine. In college, I would like to use my faith to reach out to people who don't know Jesus. After college, I want to open my own athletic training complex. And after I've completed all those tasks, then I'll think about marriage. I know God has set aside someone for me, so when I find him and we're happily married and have kids, no more than three, then I'll know that life is good. What do I hope to accomplish in the next 10 years of my life? I would like to see myself as a hard-working mother, wife, and friend. And three weeks after Sarah Beth wrote those words, she contracted viral meningitis. She went to sleep one night, and she never woke up. Parents tried to get her up for school the next morning. She was unresponsive, rushed to the hospital, and less than 24 hours later, she was pronounced dead. Those words from her diary were read at her funeral a week later. Don't get too attached. You are not promised your next breath around this place. And you certainly don't deserve it. Every day, every breath is an undeserved gift from a gracious God. And so enjoy it while you can because one day, perhaps far sooner than you ever planned, it will all be over. And when it is, only one question will matter for the rest of your eternity. Did you ever find that Savior to deal with your sin problem that we discussed back in point number one? Did you ever find that conqueror who alone could defeat death, more powerful than death, point number two. Did you ever find a hope that can last you beyond the grave? Solomon lived a thousand years too early to meet him, but we know his name today. His name is Jesus. Jesus forgives sins. Jesus defeats death. Jesus gives eternal hope. Trust in him today and you will be saved. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Trust in Jesus today and you will be blessed. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. You can be blessed in your death. Trust in him today. you don't have to fear death any longer. Through His death, Jesus destroyed the power of death and delivered all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. You can be set free from that ominous cloud. You don't have to free death anymore. fear death anymore. Trust in him today, in Jesus, and your hope can be secure. In heaven, according to God's great mercy, Jesus has caused us to be born again to a living hope through a resurrection of the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Is that your story this morning? Is that your hope this morning? I pray it is. It can be. If it's not, don't wait till it's too late.